If you're taking notes this afternoon, uh, the title of our message is You Must Keep Forgiving. You Must Keep Forgiving. And we're looking in particular at uh, the second part of, of Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. So Matthew 18, verses 21 to the bottom of the chapter. In March 1199, while attacking a small French castle, Richard I, King of England, was hit in the shoulder by an arrow. I don't know what you think of Richard the Lionheart as a person. Do you think he was a cruel man, a violent man, or a good king? I don't know. But for all his power, for all his strength, for all his achievements, when this wound became infected, nothing could be done for him. And some days later, he died. Unforgiveness among Christians is like that wound. It must be dealt with straight away because unforgiveness ruins our witness to the world outside, opens the door to bitterness, resentment, and division. A local church that doesn't keep on forgiving is a church that will stop existing. Chapter 18 of Matthew's Gospel opens with the disciples asking Jesus, who is the greatest in God's kingdom? What do you have to do? What do you have to be to become number one? Jesus tells them that greatness in his kingdom is measured by a humble trust and obedience to God day by day. In fact, without the humility of a little child who comes with nothing to their heavenly father to receive by simple trust his gift of eternal life, we cannot even enter this kingdom. Jesus goes on to tell of God's deep, fierce love for his children, which will not let them go. So when another Christian sins against you or trespasses against you, in, in the language in parts of this chapter, when, when another Christian sins against you, you are commanded in verse 15 to go lovingly, patiently, privately to them and be the hands and feet of Jesus seeking their restoration and your reconciliation to them. And it's at this point, this section in our passage, that Peter comes to Jesus with a question. In verse 21. And it's at this point as well that we have our first heading, our first point, which is the same as the title of this message. You must keep forgiving. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And before we go any further, what is forgiveness? 
Well, forgiveness is when someone comes to you, admits that they have wronged you, and asks you to forgive them. And in response, you put that sin or that wrong they have done to you out of your mind, away from your sight, and you never bring it up again. Now, let's be clear about this. Let's, let's, let's think about what that does not mean, first of all. Forgiveness does not mean that the sin that has broken that relationship has no real-world consequences for those affected. Forgiveness does not mean that any real pain caused is magically healed. Forgiveness does not mean that the sinner need not bother making things right or continuing to kill and fight against their sin. That's not what forgiveness means. But forgiveness does mean that when you say, I forgive you, you do not hold it against them. It means that you do not let that sin, that wrong done to you, stop you loving the other person. Forgiveness means that you never bring up that sin with that person again. It means that you never bring it up with other people either. And it means that you never bring it up with yourself as well. That's forgiveness. Now, I'm sure some of you are thinking right now, I know what forgiveness is. I've heard about all this before. I know that if I've been forgiven by Christ, I must forgive. I get it. I understand it. So I can, at this point, relax, switch off, and hope that so-and-so is listening hard. You know, it's easy to think of forgiveness as being easy until someone hurts you, until another Christian wrongs you, or lies to you, or abuses you. And then you find that forgiveness is actually a real challenge, a real test of our faith and belief in God's love. Notice what Peter says at the end there. He wants to put a number on how many times he has to forgive his brother. He says, up to seven times. Now think about your own heart for a minute. Someone has wronged you or hurt you in some way, another Christian maybe in the church, and they come to you, they admit that they've done something wrong, and they ask you to forgive them. And you say, okay, I will forgive you. It's forgotten about. But then very soon later, they do something else against you, and they admit that they've done wrong. And they ask for you to forgive them, and you do. And then it happens again and again. Honestly, how many times would that have to happen for you to start to find it hard to truly forgive? I would, I would argue that it's a lot less than seven times. It's a lot less than seven times before it becomes hard to forgive that person. But Jesus raises the bar even higher. Can you see what he says in verse 22? He says, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. If you've got an ESP, it will say up to 77 times. A big number. Now, obviously, Jesus is not saying that you should be sitting there with a tally, marking these things off, and when they get over that, that, that given number, 70-odd, you can turn around and say, no, I won't forgive you anymore. 
You've had all your strikes. You've had all your chances. You're done. I don't want to speak to you anymore. That's obviously not what Jesus is saying. He's obviously using a figure of speech to say to us that we must forgive and forgive and keep on forgiving. And if that wasn't clear, the story he goes on to tell us to illustrate that point makes it very clear that that's what he's saying. But why? Why is it so important that a Christian forgives, that a Christian seeks reconciliation with those who have done them wrong? Well, as I say, to help us understand this, Jesus tells a story. And that's where we have our second heading of the afternoon. Heading number two, a bankrupt man. A bankrupt man. Verse 24. Jesus says, there once was a king. And this king wants to settle accounts with his servants. He wants to look at the books, the ledgers, and figure out how much of how much his workers owe him as the king. And one of his servants is brought to him, one of the people who works for him is brought to him, and they owe him 10,000 talents. Now that may sound like a lot. I mean, it's 10,000. But we don't really use talents today, do we? That's not the money that we use. So we may not get a sense of how much that really is. If we were to go back and look at the history books and look at the politics of the day of Jesus and hear what the, the, the big, powerful people of the day were doing, we would find that thousands of talents is the kind of money that countries paid each other when they struck treaties and deals. It's a lot of money. You imagine the kind of money that uh, someone might pay another country. One country might give to another country in a trade deal. It's a lot of money. This isn't just a, a king's ransom. This is a country's ransom. And it says in verse 25, but he was not able to pay. He didn't have the money. Well, of course he didn't have that kind of money. And then it says that the consequences of this are really serious. But as he was not able to pay, verse 25, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. Now, Jesus is not here saying that slavery is a good thing. The Bible tells us that slavery is an evil thing. Why? Because there is only one race of humanity, the human race. We are all made of one blood. We all go back to Adam and Eve and all of us are made in the image of God. Therefore, for, for anyone to take another person and treat them as property as less than a human being is to deface the image of God in each of us. Jesus is not saying that's okay. What he's doing is he's simply using an illustration that people in his day would have been all too familiar with. Sadly, in, in the times of Jesus, slavery was very common. Many, many people in the Roman Empire were slaves and were put in slavery, sometimes through debt like this. So his disciples would have been all too familiar with this. What he's trying to get across to us is how serious, how much trouble this man is in. He's going to lose everything. He's going to lose his wife, his children, and all that he has. He's going to lose it all. 
And so what does he do? He falls down before his master, the king, and says, Master, have patience with me. Put up with me a little longer, and I will pay you, pay you all. I'll pay you everything. Now, he knows, and his master knows, there's no way he's ever going to pay this kind of money back. It's a country's ransom. So what does the master do in response? Does he go ahead with the ruling and take everything away from this man? Verse 25, 27 rather, then the master of that servant was moved with compassion. He was moved with pity and love for this man. He releases him and forgave him the debt. Out of mercy and love, the king in this story writes it all off. A huge amount of money. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what God does for us as Christians? Except that God can't just write off your sins. God's very character, his very nature demands that your sin be paid for. And so Jesus on the cross takes your sin and your shame, bears it all, takes the wrath of God for your sin until there's nothing left to pay. Colossians 2, Colossians 2, verses 13 to 14 says this, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, all your sins, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements, that is your debt, your debt to God's law, your keeping of God's law, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he is taking it, out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, the cross of Jesus. It's even more than that for us as Christians, isn't it? Because God has not only forgiven us our debt, our debt of sin, and it's paid for in Christ, but he makes us his children. He provides for all our needs. He's patient with us, even when we fail as Christians, because it's all been paid for in Christ once for all time. And he's faithful to us and will not leave us all the way to heaven. This is a wonderful picture, but the truth of what God has done is so much greater, isn't it? To people who don't deserve it. Why did he choose you over someone else? Because he chose to love you. That's really the answer, isn't it? But we can imagine the picture, can't we? Even though this is not quite as big as the reality, it's still a wonderful picture. And you can think of that, that man leaving the palace that day. All his debt gone. All that worry and concern gone. And he's free. How excited he must have been to go home and tell his wife and his children in this picture. But that's not the end of the story. So now we have point number three, Jesus hasn't finished. So point number three, an ungrateful man, an ungrateful man. Verse 28. 
But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Denarii, if we were to read around in the New Testament, we would find that in Jesus' day, in, in that area of the world, a denarii was basically your, your standard payment for a laborer working in the field. So a hundred denarii is a hundred days' work, isn't it? Roughly. And so the thing to take away from this is that it was a significant debt. There was a lot of money. But it was nothing compared to how much this man has just been forgiven, was it? So what does he do? How does he respond to this? And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. This man, who's just been forgiven a country's ransom, turns on his fellow worker, his fellow servant in the king's, uh, king's country, in the king's kingdom, and he grabs him by the throat. He tries to throttle him. And he says, pay me what you owe. After he's just been forgiven all of that. For a few hundred pounds, maybe. For a few thousand pounds, maybe. So his fellow servant falls down at his feet and begs him, have patience with me and I'll pay you all. That's exactly what he's just said to the king for a much bigger sum. He would have thought at this point that he would have been stopped in his tracks. He would have been reminded about all that he's literally just been forgiven. But verse 30 says this, And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay his debt. He doesn't just want the debt to be paid. He wants this man to suffer. He wants his pound of flesh, as we would say. An ungrateful, a vengeful man. Number four, point number four, verse 31. A lost man. A lost man. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. I think this may be slightly strange from the story, as it were, but we find in the rest of the New Testament this principle. And I think it's a good reminder to us that when we sin, it affects everyone around us. When there's unforgiveness in a church, everyone is affected. You say, ah, got a meeting tomorrow, going to get together. Oh, so-and-so is going to be there. And so is she or, or, or he. Oh, this is going to be awkward. They never get along. And an atmosphere comes over whatever that meeting is. It all becomes tense. We're grieved, aren't we? That's not how it should be. When we sin, we may think it's a small thing. But actually, that's affecting everything. So they tell their master what's been going on. And he calls the man back, the man whose debt, this king's ransom, he's just forgiven. And what does he say? Does he put his hand, his arm on the shoulder of this man and say, look, come on, 
I know it's bad. Look, this man has, has, hasn't paid back this debt, and I know it's a lot of money, and I know it's really hard, but look, I've just been giving you a huge amount of money. Please, just, just you know, after all that, surely just, just pay him back. Is that what he does? I know, I know it's hard, but come on, do it for me. That's not what he says, is it? That's not what he says. Verse 32. You wicked servant. You wicked servant. How dare you? How dare you? I forgave all that debt because you begged me. Should not you also have compassion on your fellow servant just as I have pity on you? And then he takes this man, he throws him into prison to be tortured until he pays back this massive debt. He takes that forgiveness away. So what's the point to the story? What's Jesus saying? Well, the reaction of the king is supposed to help us understand just how serious unforgiveness is in God's kingdom. In his unforgiveness, this man had acted against two people. Two people. First, he was utterly heartless towards his fellow servant, who he had thrown into prison. But do you notice something else in this parable? Over and over again, it emphasizes that all these servants are serving the same master. You see in verse 28, it says, he found one of his fellow servants. 29, so his fellow servant fell down at his feet. Verse 34, so when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. So this man had also shown contempt and ingratitude towards the king who had forgiven him such an immense debt. You know the way he acted? What does that tell you about how he felt about being forgiven? It didn't seem to matter very much to him, did it? Maybe he was glad that he got off. But there's no gratitude there, is there? There's no wonder that he's been forgiven. When we refuse to forgive, we refuse to forgive God's people. When they come to us and they've done us wrong, real wrong, it has really hurt, and they come and say, I'm sorry, or we go to them and we challenge them on it. And, we'd say, and they say, I'm sorry, it was wrong, please forgive me. When we refuse, we're not just sinning against a fellow servant. We're sinning against another blood-bought child of God, who God loves deeply, fiercely. And so when we refuse to show forgiveness, it's not just 
the other person that we're sinning against. It's against God. How much more evil is it for a Christian to refuse to forgive? This, this picture is, a, is an argument from the lesser to the greater. If what this man is doing is so evil, how much more evil is it for someone who's claiming to be a Christian to refuse to forgive, to refuse to seek reconciliation? And then look at verse 35. Verse 35. This is the the crux of the whole matter. Jesus says, So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Jesus is saying, If you don't forgive, you're not forgiven. You might say, Wait a minute. I thought if you were saved, if you were a child of God, that was it. You were saved for all time. How does this work? Well, first of all, I want to show you that this is something which Jesus said many times. You don't need to turn to it, but in Matthew 6, when Jesus is talking about the Lord's Prayer, do you remember that in the Lord's Prayer, he teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And just in case we've missed it, he goes on afterwards to say this, for if you, if you forgive men their trespasses, their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. On another occasion, Jesus says this in Luke 6, verse 20, verse 37, he says, Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. This is something that Jesus emphasizes several times, maybe many times in his ministry. He really means it. And notice what he also says about the heart here. He says, so my heavenly Father also will do to you, if each of you, from his heart, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. The standard Jesus has for Christians forgiving is higher than us doing it merely out of duty. It has to come from our hearts. We have to be willing to do it out of true compassion and love towards the one that has wronged us. So how does all this fit together? We know Jesus said already in this this passage, he said, even so, in verse 14, even so it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones, these Christians, should perish. Jesus has already said, when one of my people goes astray, I go and get them. I go and reach them and return them and be reconciled to them. Well, if we want to understand this, we have to remember We have to remember that to be a Christian is not simply to make a decision. To be a Christian is to meet with the living God. It's to become a new creature in Christ. It is to be born again by the Spirit of God. Being a Christian is, yes, we do something in the sense of we believe on Christ. But more than that, becoming a Christian is something that happens to you by the power of Almighty God giving you a new heart. And if that's happened to you, 
your life will start to change. Your life will start to change. So then how do you know that you're a Christian? What evidence do, you, do we need to look for to see if we truly are Christians? Well, there is a wonderful book at the end of the Bible, 1 John. What is it all about? How can you know that you're a Christian? Not how, what do you have to do to become a Christian, but what evidence in your life will there be if you really are a child of God? And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, John says this. Again, remember, this is all about what does a Christian look like? Verse 19 of, of 1 John 4. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen. How can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother. When we put all that together, we have a very serious point. If you consistently refuse to forgive in your life as a Christian, if your heart is consumed with bitterness, you refuse to go and, 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 and seek to, to bring someone who has wronged you back, to be reconciled to them, if your heart is consistently full of bitterness and you refuse to forgive, the Bible says, Jesus says, there is a huge question mark over the state of your soul before Almighty God. Serious, isn't it? But think of the blessing that comes when Christians forgive. Think of how wonderful it is if you go to a church, if you're part of a church family where you know, even when you get it wrong, even when you fail and you sin, people are going to love you enough to help you, to bring you back. They'll forgive you. A place where you're safe. A place, a safe place where there is unity. Think of how much love that brings to our hearts when we realize I'm forgiven by God, but I'm also forgiven by these people around me. My church family also forgive me. They love me. They're patient with me. They don't stop forgiving. Our Lord Jesus commands us to forgive, forgive, and go on forgiving, just as He has forgiven all our sin, past, present, and future. So I'll close with this challenge to you. Is there bitterness or unforgiveness in your heart towards anyone here or another Christian or someone else elsewhere? If there is, go and be alone with God. Think about your sin, how you have failed God, those things that you have done that if anyone else knew about, you'd be so ashamed. Those things from before you were a Christian, and those sins you committed after you were a Christian, even after you knew God's love to you. Not to be dark about it or, or anything like that, but to remember this, that all of that 
God has forgiven. And he loves you. And he's patient with you. And will go on being loving and patient with you. Think about it. And so whatever it is in your heart that you are finding hard to forgive is put in its proper place, into its proper size. And then go to God. Confess your unforgiveness. Repent. And then go and do whatever you can to be reconciled. To be reconciled. Let's uh, stand and sing our final hymn together. A song about unity and the blessings when Christians are unified in love, in love for their Savior and love for one another. Oh, how good it is when the family of God dwell together in spirit, in faith, and unity. Oh, how good it is to embrace his command 
to prefer one another, forgive as he forgives. When we live as one, we will share in the love of the Son with the Father and the Spirit. Our Father in heaven, we praise you and worship you, that you, the God who knows everything about us, sees our actions, our words, our thoughts, the very motives of our heart, knowing it all. In Christ you have forgiven us and written that debt off, paid in full. You have made us your children if we have trusted in Christ. What love you have shown us. Oh Father, help us to gain a clearer sight of that great love. Help us to gain a greater wonder of what you have done for us and your faithfulness to us, even as we have failed you as Christians. That, Lord, that love might be reflected in us to you and overflow to one another. Lord, we, if we are truly yours, we know something of these things already. Help us to know them more and more, that as a church we might glorify your great name, be a clearer witness to this world, and know more of the joy and the love that you give us. Father, we pray these things for this week and for this year. In Christ's name, amen.